It's a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. I try hard with this podcast to cover the waterfront on topics relating to life in retirement, the non-financial side. I'd love to hear from listeners, and one pointed out to me recently, love the breadth of topics you're covering, but you haven't got to one yet that I think is really important, and that's caregiving. So today will be the first of two conversations we'll be having over the next few weeks about caregiving. You'll hear two different perspectives, and hopefully with some ideas and thoughts that'll be useful and helpful to you, if that is or becomes part of your life in retirement. Today, we'll be talking with Jari Bolander, who's written a new book chronicling his experience after suddenly becoming a caregiver in 2016. His new book, Ride or Die, Loving Through Tragedy, a husband's memoir, tells the story of his caregiving experience and dealing with grief when his wife Jane was suddenly diagnosed with a terminal illness. It's a heartfelt tribute to his late wife, and he's sharing his experience in the hopes that it will help others. He is an engineer by training, an entrepreneur by nature, and a leader through experience and endurance. He holds a degree in electrical engineering and MBA in technology management, been managing engineers and scientists for over 20 years and He's also an inventor or co-inventor on over 10 patents. He writes about innovation, leadership, management, and entrepreneurship at his website. You'll find a link to two websites in the show notes. And you can also follow him on Twitter, now X, at The Daily MBA. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your experiences with us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's just, it's a pleasure. So how did you and your wife, Jane, meet? Well, that's a great story. We met at a gay pride breakfast, <laughs> funnily enough, in San Francisco around 20, it was 2012. And we were there because we were supporting then supervisor candidate London Breed, who now, as everyone knows, happens to be mayor of San Francisco. So London introduced us, which is kind of crazy to think, you know? <laughs> so yeah, we met at the gay pride breakfast and we worked on her campaign, her supervisorial campaign, and just started to become good friends with her. And then the romance, I guess, blossomed. I, just to be honest, was not in the mood for romance when I showed up at 8 a.m. on a Sunday. <laughs> like, do I have to be here? But I'm glad I showed up. So just so you know, showing up, as Woody Allen said, was 80% of life. Showing up to a gay pride, gay pride breakfast, you may meet your future wife. <laughs> It's a great quote. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about what she was like. Wow. That's a great question. She was very entrepreneurial. She owned her own business. She loved to read. She loved to really be in the mix. She was a publicist for professional athletes. So we were always going to parties and throwing parties. And she just was a go-getter. And I think what was really... That's how we sort of meshed really well. Like I was an entrepreneur as well. We sort of understood what it what each other's world was like. And she not only was very go-getter, but also very kind and considerate. She, she's like the friend you would call when stuff hit the fan and love nothing more than the one-on-one conversation. She'd call them convos. Like she was always very good at that. And just an overall loved life. You know, just like in some cases, it would make me upset because we would pack everything in. And I'm like, can I get a break from that? Can we just rest for one second? 
but I'm glad, I'm glad we packed it in as best we could. And yeah, I mean, she's missed greatly and her spirit lives on in so many different ways. And I just every day thankful that I got to meet her and be her husband and go through this journey that I talk about in the book. So. And you tell a story in the book and if you could share with us about her diagnosis and really how you became a caregiver. Yeah. So she got diagnosed with leukemia the day after Christmas, funnily enough, 2015. And we were barely, I mean, we were still newlyweds when she got diagnosed. And to say it wasn't a sucker punch to the gut was is an understatement. There's a, a scene in the book where I'm outside the ER, like trying to figure out how am I going to tell her parents? Like, ah, the heck is, how am I even going to fathom? Like, this is just, I mean, this is horrible at a, so many levels of horrible, right? But soon after the shock and awe, you start to realize you're like, okay, well, this is bad. We have to do something. We had great doctors, nurses, we had a great support network. We formed pretty rapidly this Jane's Care Circle, called it Team Jane. I always would say, I'm the coach of Team Jane and my job to keep the MVP alive. That's like, like a little shtick, you know? But it became abundantly clear very quickly that I needed to transition from the startup I was working on, which was a digital health startup, and actually run her PR business. And the reason why we did that was because we needed an income and we needed flexibility. And actually, the startup at the time wasn't paying me very much. So she basically anointed me CEO of her, of her, of her, of her PR firm. And I begrudgingly became a PR maven, which my experience to that date of doing PR was... I had no... I mean, I'm an engineer by trade. I'm an introvert. I have no clue what I'm doing. My only saving grace is that I write okay. Like He's like, yeah, you write pretty well. I'm like, okay, well, what does that have anything to do with this? It's like, well, a lot of these clients need you to write stuff for them. And I'm like, okay, well, I could do that. But no, like overwhelmingly crazy. And then I'm like, oh, my second job is I only need to care for Jane because she can't care for herself. And not that it was my primary responsibility. We had family and friends from the Bay Area. She had, her family was in the Bay Area. They were tremendous help, just salt of the earth people, just like, oh, thank gosh you were there and my family as well. But yeah, it was caregiving, not the traditional male role model, but you do what you got to do. Absolutely. And and a lot to juggle. And if I remember correctly too, you're, well, you were not a PR maven, you had a baptism by fire at Super Bowl 50. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. (laughs) My very first PR gig was the No Traffic Ahead Coalition for Anti-Human Trafficking, ahead of the Super Bowl 50, right, in 2016. And I had no idea what I was doing. I literally, we were doing a live event in the Tenderloin next to a police station near a park with these posters about, and we're midway through this and there's a four alarm fire up the street. <laughs> I mean, sm- billowing smoke. And I'm just like, we're going to get fired. <laughs> just can't do what am I supposed to do? Right. And I'm on the phone because she couldn't go. Right. She's in the hospital. I'm on the phone with her. I don't know what to do. She's all, you'll be fine. I go, no one's showing up. I don't know what I'm doing. 
like, am I in the right spot? You know, and it, and it went okay. And everyone was happy. And of course we did, we did help get the word out, but boy, uh, baptism by fire, I think. Yeah. Like throw in the deep end with a 25 pound weight on your, <laughs> around your waist and just like, just hope you can hold your breath. Tell us about the chaplain. Yeah. 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 Wow. I don't even remember her name. I wish I did because it was a very profound experience for Jane in particular. I don't even remember like what, (laughs) how many, you know, was it the third time or fourth time she was in for chemo? But as I think most people know in hospitals, they have chaplains to kind of help you through the tough times, you know, and chaplaincy is one of those gigs where you sort of meet people where they are, even if they're not spiritual or religious, it doesn't matter. Like your job is to be the comfort when they have the questions about, well, what happens next? I mean, because everyone does. I don't care if you're atheist or whatever. You're like, oh, I'm a little scared. She visited Jane a couple of times and they got to know each other. I think, I think Jane considered her a friend at some point in that capacity. And one day I come home, home being back to her hospital room. And she's sitting in bed with this little stuffed animal that, that she named Greeny, this little stuffed animal, Greeny. And she says, say hello to our new son, Greeny. And I'm all, what did I just walk into? <laughs> I don't know if you know what, what the heck, right? You know, at that point, she had been done a couple rounds of chemo. I think she was on so many medications that she wasn't feeling well. She was on, I mean, just name. It was probably a dozen of stuff she was on. and. If you have had chemo, you know, you get something called chemo brain where you're a little slower, you're a little more emotional. She'd actually been going through menopause. She was 34. So hot flashes, the whole, whole nine. And I just remember like, oh, greeny, we got a son. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Hi, greeny. <laughs> but the thing that was, was beautiful about that was, I mean, I was gone all day at work and there was no one there to be with her. And that, her parents would come, they would stay, give me a break. I mean, it was really very, they were very thoughtful and, and really supportive. But Greeny, yeah, Greeny was there for her. And I think that chaplain, man, just can't say enough good things about chaplains and nurses and doctors. Like, just talk about the hard work. How did you personally deal with the emotional side of caregiving and tragic loss? Well, the emotional side, I didn't do very well with standard, stoic, man response. I can fix it. Don't want to talk about it. I drank a lot of alcohol. I smoked a lot of pot. Just not proud of that. But literally there were days I just couldn't calm down. And just basically had two full-time jobs, one of which is (laughs) the not fun kind of, oh my gosh, this could end badly. I mean, I had to keep up with just all her appointments. I, it was a lot. And again, we, we had her family was great. We had support, but like I'm her husband. May sound a little old fashioned, but my job is to protect my wife. Like, I'm sorry if that is not, it may offend some folk, but boy, I really took that seriously. And the reason I took that seriously was because of the wedding vows, right? In sickness and health till death do us part. I know she would have done the same for me. So I was committed to that. And it made me feel really bad that like, I cannot fix this. And I'm an engineer by training, right? So I fix problems. That's my job, right? And I'm like failing miserably at this, even though it's not my fault. Kimi is not my fault. They have all these doctors. You do everything you can. But boy, the anxiety level was just shockingly high. And so 
I tried to ask for help. I did occasionally succeed in that. Most of the time, I just internalized it. I uh, just tried to calm down every day. And then when she died, I did all the bad things you're not supposed to do. I just was trying to fill the void of the loss. I was trying to fill the grief. I just couldn't. It just was just so strange. Like one day you're there and the next day you're not. And it's, it's just over. It's, it just felt like I was like bobbing in the ocean, getting pulled underneath the current. The weight of the world's on me. I can't breathe. My eyes are stinging. The hell am I supposed to do? Waves, like the wave after wave of just crash, crash, crash. Like I cannot catch my breath. But I mean, some of the good things I did was after she died, I went to therapy. I still am with my same therapist, Scott, who helped me through a lot of that. I mean, there were just days where I just could not stop crying. Like, I just, what am I supposed to, what the hell am I supposed to do? I'm a widower at 46. Like, she died at 36. Like, the hell am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? I have no idea. So, yeah, I, I dealt with it pretty poorly. And then, what was really great about that time is I met someone new who was really loving and caring and helped me out. She helped me out a lot trying to figure, navigate through that. Year after she died, I stopped drinking, which I still don't drink. It's been five years, over five years, just so much better for me. But yeah, I, as a man, stereotypically, hard to share these sort of things. Right? I mean, I can share it now. It's been six years, right? Like I, there's some distance between it. I still get emotional about it. I still, I still miss her. I still have my bad days and good days, but it's nice to be able to talk about the struggle and the challenge. And more importantly, so that if anyone else is going through it, I'm like, Oh yeah, I felt that way too. It's like, yeah, don't feel so alone. That's why I wrote the book too, is to not only showcase who she was, the relationship, the struggle, the challenge, the joy, there was some joy. I know it sounds weird, but there was some joy. And just how how I navigated it. And yeah, I hope I, knock on wood, never have to go through that again. But if I do, I think I'll know what to do. What role did community play? Oh, huge. Absolutely huge. Oh, I mean, just, I think the reason I'm talking to you today is because of the group of friends and family, the care circle, Jane's care circle, we created. I'm pretty sure I just would not. One, I'd probably, well, I don't know if I would be like not on this earth anymore. But I clearly wouldn't be in this position to talk about it. I would probably still be drinking. Well, if I hadn't met my fiance now, Minerva, I definitely would have still been drinking. She helped me a lot through that with her loving, love and support. Community is critical. I mean, especially for men. We don't you see the, the statistics nowadays, right? Loneliness, lonely men are the loneliest they've ever been. Boys don't have many men don't have like one close friend, two close friends. The burden of life is not a solo sport. And I know, yeah, life is joy and sorrow, but there is a burden to living because of stuff like this. You get injured, you lose your job, your wife dies, your husband dies, your kid gets sick. You cannot shoulder the burden alone. You just can't. I don't care how strong you are. Even the most elite military units in the world, it's a team. They spread, <laughs> they spread the misery, right? It's individual but they know that their buddy's got their back if the thing hits the fan. Like they know that in their soul. But us normal folk, we generally don't have that kind of discipline or that connection. 
and community, I think just, yeah, I strive every day to continue to build those strong bonds in community. I mean, I think it's, again, I, I'm here today because of that. You know, all my friends and yeah, it's powerful. What do people need to know about caregiving that might surprise them? Well, it's similar to having kids if you have kids, especially uh, teens or adolescents. Like, why are they angry at me? I'm doing I'm like, and why don't you respect what I've done for you? And like, I'm working so hard and yet you don't care, <laughs> right? You're like, anyone that's ever had a teen knows this, like, oh, oh, dad, you're just so embarrassing. Oh, you don't do anything for me. I think that's the surprising thing that I found was that as a caregiver, the person you're taking care of, they lose control of themselves. There's a bit of control that just goes away. And so now they're dependent on you. And a lot of fights, a lot of tension, a lot of that was the unspoken idea of, I have no control. You have control over me. I'm pissed off about this. And upon reflection, that's what I learned upon reflection because Jane would always say, oh, you know, I love you so much. Thank you so much for taking care of me on one end. And then the next end, she'd just scream at me for buying coffee or you get to leave and I don't make, make you're, you're a chemo patient. You're, you're a leukemia patient. You can't leave. She just gets so pissed. And I'm like, why is she? I am, I mean, literally killing myself to help you, protect you. I'm working two jobs. I can't, the stress is just unbearable. And you're screaming at me because I'm literally going up the street to get a double espresso and a an glazed orange scone so I can feel human for five minutes and feel that dopamine hit to be like, the only thing in my life is this espresso and this scone. I think it was the orange scone. Yeah, yeah. I, I, clearly, I think it was, right? Because ah! that's the way she was. She, she was very passionate and she had opinions, right? Which was beautiful. But the surprising thing is that the resentment, the, the fighting is their lack of control. Like they're dependent on you, behold upon you. I think the other thing that people that surprised me a little bit. If you've done it before, you sort of know, you sort of lose yourself. It's not about you, especially a sick spouse. No one asks about you. It's not that they don't care about you, but they always ask about the person that's sick. There are people that will ask, but it's hard conversation. I mean, it's a hard conversation in general. It's like, what are you supposed to say? I didn't know. No one really knows. Like, oh, how are you doing? You know, <laughs> how's Jane? And I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm like, this is not a blame thing. This is not like, oh, you should do better. This is really hard. And that's the reason why chaplains, social workers, therapists, psychologists, clergy who are trained in this are way better at it. I think that's probably the things that, that people would be, they would be a little bit more surprising. They'd be surprising, but then obvious. You're like, oh yeah, just like a teenager. <laughs> and caregiving certainly is hard for anyone, but what specific challenges do you think men face as caregivers? Well, traditionally, it's really not our role, quote unquote. I mean, if you look at just societal, it's changing a lot. I mean, you see part of the reason why I think men and boys are getting more depressed and more lonely and more isolated is because, okay, what's my role? I'm not the caregiver anymore. I'm sorry, I'm not the breadwinner anymore. I'm generally kind of disposable. I mean, it feels that way. Like most dangerous jobs go to men. People who die in wars, the majority of them are men. I don't have like a role anymore, right? So 
when it comes to caregiving, the general nurturing, again, stereotypically on average, I'm not saying this is for everything, but just generally societal falls to, to women as more the caregiver, nurturer. So as a man, you kind of fish out of water. <laughs> You're like, ah, the hell am I supposed to do? Like, I'm supposed to do stuff. Can I build something? <laughs> Can I go to work? Can I just throw money at it? And so you have to change your mindset. And I had to, I had to rapidly change my mindset from what's in my control and what's out of my control. And I could not just work harder to make this go away. I had to, and the outcome is not a task being finished. So I'll give you a great example. One of the things that Jane would get really upset with me about is I'd go to work. What you think? I go to work. Like you got to make money, right? Go to the office. What she was really telling me was that she was lonely and scared and wanted me around to be with her. And I didn't catch on to that until about month two. Where I'm like, because I didn't want to be in, I don't know if anyone, if, you, if anybody has spent time in a hospital, I hope you never do. It's not a place you can work. It's not a place that's even clean. It's just like not very good <laughs> for anyone. I don't care if, I mean, if you're sick and you have to be there, fine, but it's just not, not healthy. And I honestly didn't want to be there. She would call me that on that all the time. You don't even want to be here. And I'm like, deep down, I'm like, yeah, I don't. I don't want you here either, but I really don't want to be here. I want to leave the chaos, the hardship, the struggle, absolute insanity of the fact that you have leukemia and you're in a hospital and we're on week three of probably five. You're going through menopause. You're absolutely growing crazy. And I cannot support you. I, I'm ill-equipped to support you. That was hard for me because what she needed was not me going to work and making money. She needed me to be present for her. And over time, I, I realized that. And then and even she even acknowledged, she's like, look, I know you need to get away from this. You need to like, and this, this was the gift that I think I always think about is she was worried about my health and well-being too. So I think for men, it's that it's not always what you're doing as a caregiver. It's being present. It's being thoughtful. It's like listening. It's like having them being heard. Cause I mean, they're in a, awkward spot. I mean, Jane, type A entrepreneur, changing the world, do whatever she wants. I go on, I want to go on vacation, you know? Now she's like, hey, babe, can you get me some towels? <laughs> hey, babe, what's it like outside in the real world? Like, it felt like prison to her. And yeah, that was a challenge. So what'd you learn about other people? And what'd you learn about yourself? Well, I learned about myself that if you have a halfway decent attitude, you can pretty much get through anything. You don't have to be stellar. You just have to show up and be committed. And you're going to make mistakes and things are not going to go bad. But if you've got good intent and you're working towards it, I mean, I tend to bias negative generally. I'm a ne call me negative person, but like I bias negative. Like everyone about that knows me, right? But I'm a I'm, I tend to bias negative, find the fault in things. And as a caregiver, what I learned is that that negativity, the people that are interacting with you, they want reassurances that everything's going to be okay. You're basically not only the <laughs> captain of the team, but you're also the cheerleader of the effort. And so they want to hear everything's going to be okay. They want assurances that you as the expert, which you are, think this is going to go according to plan, right? So it's a pretty big burden. 
to be honest, because like that's a heavy load, right? And the other thing about people that it's that I had the same problem with, so I'm fully guilty of this as well. Since a lot of people have never dealt with this before, this is maybe the first time they've dealt with it. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to act. They don't know what to do. And they rely on you. Like, hey, how can I help you? And I'm like, if I knew, I'd tell you. I have no idea. I'm literally trying to get through the next hour. She's got a pick line insertion in an hour and a half. I'm trying to calm her down because she's really anxious about this. The chemo is going to start tonight. She is freaked out beyond freaked out. I'm literally trying to get to the next minute. And I can't even fathom what I need other than take the leukemia away. <laughs> I wish she didn't have leukemia. That's that, if you could do that, then we're good. But I know that's impossible, right? So, yeah, that's that. So, tell us about the title of the book. Yeah, Red or Die. So that was not the original title. Have to thank my fantastic superstar editor Brooke Warner for that. The original title was Say a Prayer for Greenie, and she, yeah, which that was a long story. It's a story in the book about that. So, what was interesting is that. Jane would always say, you know, we're ride or die. And you know, that's the history of that saying is, so folks in hip hop use it a lot. So she was a big hip hop fan. Before that, the origination of it was from Bonnie and Clyde, funnily enough, where Bonnie wrote a, a poem about Clyde and like, I'm the edge of the end, I ride or die to the end or something like that. So the origin is nefarious in the sense that we're criminals. We're going to die in a shootout together. The way it's been morphed into things, I mean, motorcycle riders are the same thing. I mean, I can either ride or I'm not going to die not riding, right? What we thought about it was, it's basically the, the mantra for the manifestation of, of the marriage vows. In sickness and health, the death do you part. Like, look, we're into it to the end. And no matter how hard it is, I'm just going to keep riding on until the end. And it was Brooke, as we were going through the editing, she's like, I just don't like to say a prayer for Greeny title. What the hell does that even mean? And I'm going to read the book. She's like, I know it doesn't feel right. And so I'm like, gosh, okay. What idea do you have? And so she's the one that came up with ride or die loving through tragedy, a husband's memoir, which just encapsulates the entire thing. Like so perfectly for any of those of you that are aspiring writers or want to write, everyone says, but what's the secret to successful writing? It's a good editor. They make or break A+. plus. I, I can't say enough good things about Brooke and her team over at Spark Press. Just, I mean. And then I, I even had other editors like one of my friends, Leslie Watts, and another friend, or Shelly, over at StoryGrid. But boy, she just got me. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, whoa, okay. I guess you understand what's in my head. <laughs> Makes all the difference. Yeah, yeah. You've been through so much, and I appreciate you sharing your experience. It's going to be very helpful to many of us, I'm sure. But tell us, what's life like now? Yeah. Well, every day is an adventure, right? Every day I wake up, I'm like, oh, I'm happy I have another day, right? I think that really changed my perspective. Even if today is a shitty day, gosh, I got one more day. Like, I'll just try to use the day as best I can. Oh, and I've got all the problems and challenges and struggles that everyone else has. But I am thankful and I also have a better attitude about like, well, if this is my last day, then I'm okay with that. It's hard to come to that conclusion. It takes some time. 
one of the great things about life now is I've got a fiance named Minerva who helped me tremendously through this struggle. She's got a, a daughter who uh, just started high school. So be a future stepdad, which is great. And such a wonderful, weird, crazy, I, I'm like, I just hope I'm doing a good job. <laughs> Same thing, caregiver, right? I have a little experience, but a little bit different from this human that's for me, taking on the world. I mean, I do consulting for B2B companies and sales and marketing. I, that's a pretty creative and crazy kind of gig, but it's some, similar to what I did with Jane. Life now, I just try to just be thankful <laughs> that every day I get actually is a gift. It seems cliche almost, but boy, I have more days. She doesn't. And I think part of honoring those that have gone before us is to try to live your best life, and not for them, not be, I mean, sort of because of them, but just to honor them. I'm never going to be her. I'm never going to be, do what she did, but she wanted me to have, be happy. She wanted me to find love again. She wanted me to do, be my best self. And the struggle is real on that, <laughs> as I'm sure most people are. And transitioning from anything is hard, right? You talk about retirement a lot, right? And that's a big transition too. Like now what? I used to be this guy working and now what am I going to do? Like <laughs> whittle wood all day. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? It's like, oh, now what? But life's pretty good. Honestly, life's pretty good. Glad to hear it and wish you all the best with the book and thank you with your days to come. And thanks so much for sharing all of it with us. I appreciate your time, Joe. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jari. Time for a few takeaways so you can apply from today's conversation going forward. And I'll start with a quick story. Last October, my wife's uncle, Uncle Leo, died at the age of 95. And one thing that always impressed me about him is decades earlier, his wife had Alzheimer's and he took care of her for 10 years. And I remember thinking during that time, boy, that's really an act of true love, just seeing the, sac the sacrifices he made to make sure she had the care that she needed. And so my first takeaway is think about what will you do when faced with these types of, of choices? What's your plan? How do you expect to handle it? What are some of the things that you heard today that can make you better prepared for that moment and moments ahead? Number two, be grateful for today. I think his reflections on valuing the days that we have now really rings true. And number three, who should you honor in the way that you're living your life? Thanks for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. We'll have a new episode coming up again next week. Thank you.